Fear Itself is sponsored by Oto, the leading CBD brand. CBD is one of the most exciting ingredients in beauty and wellness right now. Approved by the World Health Organization, CBD is a natural, safe extract derived from the cannabis plant. It is completely non-psychoactive and won't get you high. Instead, CBD connects the body and mind to create balance and has been shown to help regulate sleep and even reduce inflammation. Oto was created by Gemma Kaleo, who first started using CBD in California to help manage her own anxiety and sleep. When she returned to the UK, she found the CBD market to be crowded with ineffective products and confusing dose recommendations. She wanted to redefine CBD in the UK with sophisticated products that are enjoyable to use. So, Oto was born. All Oto products come with the Oto Strength Guarantee, delivering a daily dose of 40 to 60 milligrams of CBD to help you find your space. Visit otocbd.com for more information. I'm Michelle Hussein, and a fear I have directly relates to my work as a live broadcaster, where I fear and worry that something will go catastrophically wrong when I'm on air one morning. Welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with people about their personal stories around fear. In my experience, fear can be motivational, but it can also really hold me back, and I'm curious to understand this dynamic a bit better. How does fear show up? How do people try to hide it? How can we harness it? And what can we learn from it? One of the UK's most respected broadcasters, Michelle Hussein, joins me this week to talk about her fear of something going wrong on air. Michelle has fronted everything from BBC evening news bulletins to leadership election debates, and in 2013, Michelle became the first ethnic minority presenter of Radio 4's flagship Today programme. As well as her work in radio and TV, Michelle has written a book, The Skills, which is a practical guide to help women realise their professional ambitions. Michelle always seems so confident on air, so I was curious to know if she ever experiences doubt and how she deals with her fear in high-pressured situations. We discuss how preparation and breaking things down helps her, dealing with scrutiny and what influence her parents had on her. Listen out at the end for her three tips on how to approach a job interview, pitch or any high-pressured situation. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Cressida. Good to talk to you. When I watch you on TV and I listen to you on the radio, you are as cool as a cucumber and nothing seems to rattle you. And what's really interesting is in your book, you're very open about actually how things are on the inside compared to the outside. And can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, it's something I have thought about a lot over the years and there was a particular moment where I went to give a talk at a school a few years ago where someone said exactly the kind of thing you've just said which is that someone like you looks like you never get nervous you never have a moment's doubt and I thought if we go around in life thinking only people who never experience fear or worry or doubt they are the only ones who can do the kind of job I do then we've got a big problem in shutting off the idea of these kinds of careers to people who experience what is obviously a part of everyday human life and and emotions. And I would say that 
things do change over time. I mean, obviously today, when I've been on the Today programme for several years now, what I feel and experience is not the same as what it was when I began, when I was a lot more anxious and worried about what my next shift might be like. That's, you know, I had very little experience of it. So so there's an obvious trajectory. It's not as if you feel exactly the same degree of um, of emotion at every stage. And I think a healthy degree of fear about when you are going to do something that is going to test you a lot is normal and natural and also is hopefully going to help you pull out all the stops and perform, you know, stage fright. Of course, it can be debilitating for some people, but for many people, it's part of you gearing yourself up you know, to do something that's important to you. Yeah. And I mean, you have been doing this for 25 years. And I wonder, has the fear and those nerves before you do, say, a live broadcast, has that got easier over the years? It depends what is the specific thing that's in front of me. When something new comes along, say I've been asked to commentate on a live event, which is something I haven't done that much in my career and which is a specific set of skills. That, that's not going to be a normal day in the office for me. Or when I was asked to be a presenter on the Olympics, initially when I was asked, I thought, well, I come from a news background, I'll probably be paired up with a sports presenter, they'll take care of the more sporty side of things we'll have to talk about and I'll do the more newsy side. And as it happens, I was thrust into a solo position where there were loads of live sporting events that were happening in the time that I was on on air. And and I did set aside time to prepare really practically for that in that I, you know, bought a book about the Olympics and I worked out what were the most likely things to come up in the in the time that I was going to be on air. And I can't say that I referenced that research or that homework a lot when it actually came to it, but they were stepping stones. Going through the motions of having done that just put me in a better place when it came to that big day, Mm. even if what I'm going to be faced with is not something I anticipated at all. There was just an element of, it it was like I'd built a house from the foundations and I was just, um, I hadn't started from the roof down. And that really just helped get me in a better state of mind yeah and it feels like that you know as you say you only have a short amount of time sometimes to you know you get told you have a an an interview or a project like that and then you have to prepare quite quickly and I'm imagining that does take a lot of focus yes it does but I think I'm also probably fortunate or maybe it's just that I it suits me is that I work to quite immediate deadlines and it's often quite obvious what you need to focus on or or even to break it down even further in the morning when I get to my desk at the BBC it's four in the morning there's going to be a pile of briefs maybe eight or ten interviews that you'll have to do over the course of the program and it's going to be immediately apparent which are the ones which you can look at and prepare for very quickly and which are the ones which are going to take more time Mm. but breaking it down in that way thinking okay I'm going to you know, whisk through the short conversations I'm going to have with the correspondent and I'm going to make sure I leave aside this much time to think about the interview with the government minister. That process of breaking it down really helps me. And and even when, when I'm writing an introduction, I always think about what's the first thing that I'm going to ask my interviewee? Because that also happens to take some of the fear out of the interview for me. Once I've decided, where am I going to start this conversation? The rest of it feels more natural. Whereas if I look at that interview in a, in a more abstract way and think, 
such and such government ministers, my 810 interview, there are so many things that I need to address with him or her. And then it can just feel quite amorphous and and much more likely to be overwhelming or almost slightly paralyzing where you don't know where to start. So I really believe in breaking it down and just thinking, well, what's the first thing I'm going to say? or What's the first thing I'm going to do? Yeah. And actually, in your book, you, you say um, you have three things, three points in every interview, or every situation. And it's so helpful that it's not rocket science. And yet, it's the kind of thing which can really help people. And obviously, my big most testing scenarios are when I'm doing the interviewing, but not always. There are also pitch meetings or there's, uh, you know, there have been big job interviews and where you need to really make sure that you present yourself in the best possible light. And I think, again, it, it can help take the stress or some of the stress out of those big moments. If you think there are just three things I really need to get across in this Whatever I'm asked, I'm going to make sure I get these three things across. And obviously, there'll be, there will be more things that are important that we'd like to get across. But more than three, I think it's just quite hard to remember when you're going to be un- placed under considerable pressure in that job interview, important work meeting, appraisal kind of yeah. uh, scenario. But I think if you've honed the message down as much as you can... It also allows you space to think about other things. That's why I think in this, if we're talking about fear, it's not as if you're going to conquer them all or you're going to suddenly be the kind of person who never experiences this. But if you can control the ones or come to terms with the ones that you are able to address and remove them, then you can, you know, the the capacity that you have can be much better focused on the things that you know, life will throw at you unexpected things. In my broadcasting life, people will say things that are extremely contentious, come out of nowhere that I wasn't prepared for, that I wasn't expecting. And it's my job to be able to react to them and to take the conversation in the best possible direction. Mm. But just doing the right homework in advance just helps me feel like I've built the right blocks. Yes. Yeah. And this um, brings me on to the, your, your fear of something going wrong, which is completely understandable. You know, I can't even imagine that pressure of live interviewing, broadcasting and, and having that feeling of something going wrong. Has anything gone wrong live before? Oh, gosh, yes, numerous things. When I say I, I fear something going wrong, you see, there are so many different levels at which it can and all of them you have to learn from. Probably the worst situation is is if you end up in a legal problem because we have defamation laws and as a broadcaster and as someone who is working in a live situation there's always the possibility that uh, someone might say something defamatory on air and then you have to think really fast to try and contain that kind of risk or ideally to anticipate that kind of risk Mm -hmm. so that doesn't happen so that's something that all journalists will be thinking about throughout their careers then there's a kind of thing where someone just says something and you don't get it and you end up looking stupid or silly um that can also be a moment of great fun i once had i was once interviewing the the chapman brothers when they were opening a new exhibition and you know we were sort of talking at cross purposes it was just a bit messy and sort of funny in parts but also just slightly embarrassing and it was quite early on in my career and I just remember thinking god that was so awkward but now I just think well if you did really 
samey, really safe broadcasting all the time, um, that's just not that interesting or enjoyable. And there has to be an element of danger and the unpredictable. And you shouldn't be afraid also to say on air, I hadn't thought of that, or that's really interesting, or to be alive to something new that someone has put you that you've never thought of yeah so now I feel much more comfortable and again experience has taught me this I feel more comfortable with the idea that I may well look really silly or stupid on air one morning I, I you know probably regularly and you don't want to have that persona you don't want that to be an everyday occurrence but you want to accept that that's part of your your particular professional environment yeah and what is the most have you had a really frightening interview that you can remember that you've done I've had ones which have been very contentious and where afterwards you ask yourself, you know, did I handle that as well as I could? And the most contentious periods are always coming up to elections or, you know, looking further back, the Brexit referendum or the Scottish referendum. These these are times where, you know, the electorate is moving towards a certain point in time and there's obviously everything to play for. And those are times where all the usual constraints that we work with apply a certain amount of time for an interview certain choices you have to make in what you're going to uh, to get to and it's just sometimes they can end up more bad tempered the exchanges than you would have wished and i it, it's that whether the, there's been more heat than light in the course of an interview and those are you know, I often think about those afterwards and think, how could I have done that better so we were more in the light rather than the heat scenario? But yeah. it's not always possible, um, you know, especially when it comes to political life and big political events. And I feel like to to go into some of these situations that you you do, that you do have to have a very strong sense of self. And do you think that you have always had this strong sense of self from quite a young age. Um, and, your, you know, your parents are both from Pakistan. Did they, did they teach you this? I think you're right. You do have to have a strong sense of self. But I don't think that means that you need to be overbearing or supremely confident in your abilities. I think the strong sense of self also has to come with a healthy dose of introspection to an extent and self-searching and awareness that you're going to get things wrong but my parents how did my parents bring me up I think they certainly they brought me up with a very strong feeling that you know my education and my investment in myself was the most important thing I could do and they also all around me was that sense that I would earn my own living one day. You know, a, a lot of Asian families at that time, and probably even now, there might have been a lot of emphasis on on your daughter's marriage and that, you know, one day that was going to be her, her future. But that was never the world that I was brought up in. Mm. There was no, I never felt there was any difference between what was expected of my brother in terms of his education and his um, expectations of, of him professionally and mine. So I think that was there that was there throughout and I remember having this strong sense of I'm going to make something of my life and some of that I think does come from being the child of immigrants because when you've seen your parents move to a different country and you know make their way in a new country without any um, sort of safety net or an old school system or a family network around them 
you know, that is, it does fill you with a, a lot of gratitude about the choices they made and what it led to. Yeah. I remember my mother saying to me once that when my father was a junior doctor, one of his colleagues, this must have been in the early 70s, and he was in the NHS, and and she said, I remember one of his colleagues saying to me, if he was white, he'd be a consultant by now. Oh, really? And it's just, you just think, well, I'm so grateful that... You know, we're, that we're in a different era. Yeah, because you do say that your your mum, you know, being in a different generation and perhaps being more stereotyped at that time, could have done or wanted to do so much more. And, and I wonder if you, did you see that and think, well, I'm going to now do all the things that perhaps my mum wanted to do but couldn't. And I was wondering maybe if you got that drive from seeing that. I think there's definitely an element of that and I and I think it would have been in my subconscious growing up especially having financial independence because my father and mother both placed a lot of emphasis on my education but I grew up in a family where although my mother had been a television producer in Pakistan before she came to the UK throughout my growing up years she was a homemaker and I I just had this strong sense that I would always want to have my financial independence from whoever I was whoever I was married to and I think a lot of that did come from just seeing that there was probably a power dynamic in my parents relationship that I just wasn't comfortable with you know one was a one was the breadwinner one was at home and I knew that I wanted my life with whoever I would end up with to be much more equal yeah that's so interesting, actually, because I don't have children yet, but I would love to have children one day if I'm lucky enough. And but also to have a career. And but I worry that I won't be able to have both. And actually, you, I look at you and you are an amazing example of having these three boys and, you know, still climbing the career ladder, which is just amazing. And I wonder, how do you how do you do that? <laughs> but there are many times when uh, you know, especially when my children were younger and even now, and I, I still look at other mothers and think, you know, especially the stay-at-home mothers and think that they're giving so much more to their children than than I've had the capacity to give. But, I, you know, I really try not to think about th- those things. And I'd say to you, Cressida, just banish that word guilt when you think about what your future could be. Because we, I really believe as human beings, we do the best that we can at that point in time. And... You know, there will be moments where you'll be torn in different directions, almost certainly. But, you know, you'll you'll cross those bridges when you when you come to them. But I don't feel that guilt as an emotion, as a feeling really helps us with the practical things that we still have to do. Mm. You know, you still have to get up and, you know, I was going to say go to work which is not now, still get up yeah. and do work of, of, some, of some kind or another and, you know, still look after our, our, our children, our families and all of those things. And it, I think for most people, and I feel really the thing I'm most conscious of is that I haven't had to face any, any really untoward life events, you know, sickness of someone close to me or those kinds of things are the ones which... I think when people find a way through those things, I really salute them. Yes, definitely. I think I've only just just done, you know, the, just faced the normal everyday kinds of things and been lucky enough to have had a, a great career and healthy children, you know, in at the same time. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you, you've been to refugee camps and you've interviewed people who have been raped and who have experienced all kind of pain and and talking about fear you know have experienced horrendous fear that we can only imagine and 
you know, I guess that also I, for you, I'm, I'm imagining puts it all into perspective when you come back home. Yes, absolutely. And there are times when I've come back home from exactly that kind of place and walked in the door and, you know, there is that strange juxtaposition sometimes of your life where you walk walk in the door and everything for the family has carried on as normal. And one of my boys, just, just after I arrived back from somewhere like Gaza, I think, and he said, can you find out where my Amazon parcel has got to? And I just looked at him and I thought, he has no idea how this sounds to me although I did tell him how it sounded to me, which was just that I was not in the right place in my mind to be thinking about his Amazon parcel. But that's, you know, just on a very, very tiny level, it just makes you think about that, that how you do have to somehow merge those different parts of, of your life, because all of that is a part of me, what I see professionally and my home life, it's all part of the same person. But there are times when it does the blend or the when one comes up against the other does jar rather yeah and doing those 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 kind of interviews that I was just we were just talking about when you're you know away and 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 seeing these horrors how do you go about those interviews and how do you judge those situations you really hope that you have done justice to that person's story first because something terrible has happened to them but also because of the effort and the pain that they go through through re retelling it even though often retelling it is the most cathartic thing possible for them and the thing that actually they've been waiting to do and I remember in Bangladesh when I went to do a story about the Rohingya refugees and we went to to a a UN women's um, like a day center where women come with small children it's just somewhere where where they can get some kind of support and we, you know, sat in a circle and I just asked a few really basic questions and then they just started talking. And, you know, there was no common language. So there's a a really long period of time where I can just hear a woman, you know, talking in a language I don't understand and weeping as she did so. But it was as if I could understand every word because Mm. everything about her body and her face conveyed the enormity of what she was describing. And afterwards, you know, it's it's afterwards we just embraced and held each other and and then you just think, well, she will never hear the final report I did on this, but I really hope that if she did somehow that she would feel it did justice to what she had told me. Yeah, wow. And I bet those um imagine those situations really sort of you've learned so much from those experiences. You do, and you of course you come back incredibly grateful for your own life and everything that you know you've been given and your circumstances being so different um yeah but it's yeah it's 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 sobering and important yes and i wanted to talk to you about um scrutiny and and critics because obviously you're in a line of work that you know you're um it's quite exposing to that mm. and how do you deal with scrutiny it's probably the hardest thing about joining the Today programme because before that I'd been I'd been on BBC One on the Sunday 10 o'clock news which I still do and I'd been an international broadcaster but the weird thing is that broadcasting to millions of people around the world never exposed me to the scrutiny that broadcasting to seven million people on the Today programme in this country had done and so I was unprepared for the degree of of exposure that 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 brought on an immediate level you know you come off air and you see 
I mean, I, I, I don't regard social media as being the ultimate test of how well or badly an interview has gone, but it's, it's, always, it's often a source of a decent snapshot of how a particular set of people are responding to what you've done. And so I might come off air and see loads of negative feedback. And it, it, in the beginning, it really shook me. And even now it can, can shake me. Mm. But I think what I've, what I've learned over time is that there was a time when I would come off air and I'd walk through the newsroom, out of the studio and through the newsroom, and I would imagine that the interview that I was worrying about, that I felt hadn't gone, hadn't gone well... I felt as if it was written across my forehead in big letters. You know, that was a terrible interview she did with X. I felt as if it was the first thing other people in the newsroom were thinking about when they saw me. And then I realised that really no individual is that important. So everyone I see in the newsroom at that point is just getting on with their own morning. Yeah. You know, I, and, and that, because you, you think about how often do you think about other people's mistakes or things that have gone wrong for them? You no, know, chances never. are... Chances are you don't. You know, it's a, it's, it might, might be something you read about in the newspapers and it's yeah. interesting at a particular moment, but you don't dwell on it. And in the same way, people are not dwelling on yours. And it's what I try and tell my children now because, you know, when they go through moments where they feel, oh, I'm not going to put my hand up in class because I'm always the one who's getting it wrong. And just that sense of, you know, what will people think? I'm always the one getting it wrong. It's just people probably aren't. In fact, they almost certainly are not thinking that. Yeah. And I think as as women, sometimes we're frightened of our own voices, perhaps more than men. The balance I'm always trying to strike, whether it's with myself or with someone else, is that you do have to be able to analyse your own work and you do have to be able to think, well, what could I do better next time? And what didn't go as well as I'd hoped? And where are the areas that I can improve? But you have to find a system where you can do that and it not derail you for the next time that you're faced with a big moment or even just an ordinary or even just an ordinary shift. I still remember actually the first time on the Today programme that I did the 810 interview with the government minister. And actually I remember it was Theresa May who was then the Home Secretary. Mm. And you know, it's it's like at that moment I was I was analysing it. You know, what did, what what could I've said here, or what should I've said here, and that's probably inevitable because it was the first time I'd had that slot. But you know, ultimately, you just want that to be a relatively quick process. Where I think of it as just clocking what you need to know from that, and then thinking about the future because if you dwell on things too much I think you can work yourself up into a a frenzy or even just to slightly get derailed in a way that's going to affect your performance next time and I've always been really conscious of that it's why I'm not that comfortable with the term imposter syndrome which Mm. I know a lot of people talk about nowadays but I think of course there are moments where I think can I get this interview right and or maybe I haven't got it right but if I start thinking about myself as an imposter, that I just fear could be a self-fulfilling prophecy and affect my performance in the future. Yeah. And I still have to stop myself even today. You know, someone, if they compliment me on an interview I've done, my instinct is often to say, oh, but I think I could have asked them this or I think I should have asked them this. And I once had the experience where I'd come off air interviewing David Cameron when he was prime minister at the Tory party conference in 2015, I think, Mm -hmm. and came off air and my editor said to me, you know, I thought that was really good. And I said, 
oh, I think I could have or should have asked him this. And I, and I thought, I've now put this idea into my own editor's head that maybe this interview hasn't gone as well <laughs> as he thought it had. And actually, the right answer to that question is thank you, or to that point, you know, that went well is thank you. And then, and then there's probably a space to think, okay, well, what might we have done differently? Or what are the areas that we could now explore that were left unanswered properly and that we could now follow up and explore differently so there's a there's a way to have that conversation but it's certainly the case that not everyone who gives you a compliment needs to hear that you think you didn't do so well yeah and for you to end up changing their opinion and um and the best advice you've ever been given I read somewhere was from John Humphreys on live broadcasting and he said the fear actually it never leaves you so it's always you know suggesting it's actually always going to be there even you know he's got this huge career as do you so it's always going to be there perhaps it's just how you you know as you were saying what you tell yourself and how you harness it yes I think of it as sitting on the edge of my seat in the studio I I feel as if I never want to get too comfortable in that studio because that's the point where I don't take it seriously enough and I may become complacent and where it will then be taken away from me. So I always want to feel that degree of apprehension, that frisson of, of fear and anxiety, really, which keeps me sharp, which reminds me that this is a very privileged position I have where I'm sitting in that studio and I get to question the powerful and I get to you know facilitate other people's words and put my own words across to millions of people on a high profile uh, radio program that is a very privileged position I never want to get into the state of mind where I don't uh, I'm not sufficiently conscious of of that yeah and has your fear ever stopped you? Because I look at you and I and I, I just feel like, oh, she just, I know that she has the fear, but she just uses it and she pushes through it, which is so inspiring. But I'm thinking, has the fear ever stopped her? It nearly stopped me going for the job at the Today programme. Oh, really? Okay. And this is going back seven years now, but when... Uh, when there was a new editor of the Today programme, the possibility that the programme might appoint a new presenter, and I was asked if I was interested, my initial feeling was, no, no, that's not the kind of job I could ever do. And I came home and said to my husband, you know, I've been asked if I might be interested in this, and I just don't think it's right for me. And one of, and I, and I had my reasons. It's we had young children, getting up very early in the morning. I did think about the scrutiny, and. I just thought it's just too highly pressured. And he said to me, don't be ridiculous, you have to go for it. And thank goodness he did. But it has absolutely nearly stopped me doing things. And I and I think I at that point, I also thought it's the kind of job I'd like to do one day, but I'm not quite I'm not ready for it. Mm. And I don't think that's a fully wrong instinct, because there are jobs that are that you are more ready for it at, at a particular stage in your career. And I don't think I think for some of these very high-profile jobs, you need a certain amount of mileage under your belt before you have a sort of enough... It's just about having enough journalistic experience, really. 
But I had, so I definitely had to be nudged towards that. And I do sometimes think, well, if I'd followed my first instinct with that, I just would have, uh, you know, I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone for it at all. And it's, and it was really transformative for me as a journalist because it exposed me to so much more than I ever had been before. Yeah. And Michelle, I wanted to ask you, if you could give just three tips for someone who's fearing a pitch or fearing an interview, or in my case, sometimes fearing an audition room, what would those mm. three tips be? Ooh, auditions, I really, my heart goes out to you, Krista, because I think auditions must be really quite something where you are totally in someone else's hands and you're going to have to have a go at whatever they yeah. they put forward so um so credit credit to you for being in that world so the three things i would say one of them would be believe in yourself because you will have gone through a process where you will have really thought about what you're putting forward and believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself and what you're putting forward then why should anyone else? So don't rely on the other person being the one who has to believe in you. you. You have to put across that persona that what you are doing is right and valuable and valid. Second thing I would say is think about your message and try and distill it down. If there is something in particular you need to get across, make sure that the other person is not in any doubt when they leave you about what the core thing was that that you needed to get across what what you want to be remembered by if you like and the last thing I, I would say is that you know be kind to yourself because not everything will go really well and that doesn't mean that you weren't good at it it means that chances are you were going for something that was that is particularly hard and you're pushing yourself and if you remain in your comfort zone all the time you're never you're never going to have those kinds of tougher experiences so when they do happen or when something goes wrong then be kind to yourself just cut yourself some slack in that rather than think the message you should take away is that you should never have gone for it in the first place mm. and your dad said some wonderful advice about aiming high what was the exact sentence <laughs> that he said which i love he said um aim high because if you don't get quite to where you want it to be then you'll still end up in a good place whereas if you don't set your sights high enough mm you know if you if you if you undershoot then if you've aimed high in the first place at least where you end up even if you don't get there is in is a good place yeah. so um, he never put it in terms to... he never put it in terms of the moon and the stars but it's that kind of if you aim for the moon and you miss you still end up amongst the stars yeah i love that and michelle where do you go when you're feeling fearful and this could be in your imagination or or somewhere physical but because of these times, I'm thinking maybe somewhere in your in your mind. I think I, I I try to just go through a process which is which is really concrete, rather than be in this sort of fog where it's a mess of feeling unhappy and insecure about something that's happened. I try and really drill down and think, okay, what really specifically am I worried about here? Is it so and so's reaction? So then I'll think really hard, okay, that's not great that they didn't think it went well. Maybe it's an editor or, you know, someone writing about me in the papers or something. But ultimately, how important is that particular thing? I'm either going to learn from it or if it's criticism that's coming from from a very sort of obviously partisan place, then maybe I don't need to think about it maybe very much. Perhaps it's just par for the course mm. and I don't need to dwell on it. 
So I, I, I just try and think really concretely, which, which hopefully just separates the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Because we worry about a lot of things that are not that important. I know, we, I certainly We do, do use a lot of headspace oh my goodness. in thinking about all of that. Yeah, and I think maybe it's a muscle that we learn not to, not <laughs> to try and dwell on things because mm. I really dwell and I've, you know, just have to learn. To, and I think it's just, you know, growing older and realising actually you know that's not a worry and actually I'll look back in my time it's really to put it into the big scheme of things and perspective it is not a, a yes, worry so true and Michelle what's the song or piece of music you would go to I think probably some my mother has a beautiful voice and she she sings many things beautifully, but um, she sings Danny Boy really beautifully and she sang it at my father's memorial service. And even though it's generally something that makes me, me cry, even before she sang it at my father's memorial service, but it's just the kind of thing which just the sound of her voice is so, is so soothing and uplifting to me. So I, I have a recording on my laptop of her singing it and, um, and yeah, it means a lot to me. Oh, lovely. And the last question is, what would you do if you were not afraid? If I was not afraid, I think I would just spend a lot more time doing much more fruitful and productive things. And I would, I would be much freer. I would spend less time worrying about some things which I can't change. And I would, um, I, I would be quite, quite liberated. Mm. Thank you, Michelle, so much. It's been lovely for me to talk to you. That is the last episode of season one of Fear Itself. Thank you so much for listening. I have loved hearing all your feedback and I hope you have been inspired, entertained or learned something along the way. A big thank you to all my guests for coming on and being so lovely and open with your stories and wisdom. Thanks to my producer, Hannah Varrell, Kazra and James at One Fine Play, Malt Martin for his beautiful music, and Emily Letts for the very cool artwork. You can follow me on Instagram at Cressida Bonus, where I'll keep you posted on news about season two. Thanks, guys. <laughs>